Welcome to Information's Crossroads podcast. I'm John Burke, America's Editor for Information. Joining me today is Michael Ryder, Senior Managing Director and Head of Americas uh, for OMERS Infrastructure, uh, Jonathan Carmody, Editor for Information Latin America, and Marco Espinoza, VP and Director of Operations for the Caxfor Group. Thanks for all joining me today, guys. Thanks, John. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. So, Marco, we're going to hear from you a little bit later in the program on a $3.3 billion cross-border logistics project that Caxor has in the works. But first, we go to decarbonization and greenhouse gas emission reduction remaining a major focus for fund managers as both an investment thesis as well as a function of social consciousness, given all the challenges our world continues to face. OMER's uh, infrastructure sits on uh, $21.3 billion in assets under management spanning investments all over the world. Since joining OMERS in early 2018, one of Ryder's first investments came in helping build out its renewable platform through its acquisition of Leeward Renewable Energy, at the time a portfolio of 1.7 gigawatts of renewable assets. And this is where our discussion begins. So uh, Michael, uh, Leeward has been quite busy in the past few years under OMERS stewardship. Can you give us an update on the projects in the pipeline? John, thanks for having me on the podcast today. Really appreciate the chance to be here. Uh, as you mentioned, I joined OMAS almost three years ago uh, to lead the infrastructure business uh, in the Americas region. And although infrastructure has grown uh, as an asset class over the last five to 10 years more broadly, OMAS has actually been a direct investor in infrastructure uh, for much longer than that. Our platform goes back to the late 90s, uh, more than 20 years. We've been a, a leader and a direct investor in the, in the sector. We have a, a, a long-term investment horizon, which we think differentiates us in the market. And we take a pretty active and, and engaged approach to managing the portfolio to drive value creation for our pensioner members. As you mentioned, we, we made a significant investment in Leeward Renewable Energy in uh, 2018. We acquired 100% of the company and uh, the business at that time owned approximately 1.7 gigawatts of, of wind generation assets and had a pretty significant portfolio of, of development projects that, uh, that we thought was quite interesting. So we've owned uh, Leewood for just over two years now, and we've been incredibly busy with the company, working closely with management in order to, uh, to, to both grow value at the existing assets and, and also realize uh, a, a portion and, and grow that development project pipeline. When we worked through our diligence for the acquisition, we identified a number of potential value creation opportunities and growth strategies and, uh, and, and worked in detail with uh, the management team to flesh those out. And uh, over the past couple of years, we've partnered to, to build on that and continue to look for more ways in which we can grow. So Jason Allen uh, and the management team at Lee would have done a fantastic job and, and really supported that strategy. A couple of things that we've done, we've grown the development team by over 20 people during the past two years. Uh, we've significantly enhanced our capabilities both on the wind side and on the solar side, uh, which was not an area that Leeward was focused on before our investment. We've also had considerable success uh, completing three new projects. Um, well, I should say in the, pro in the process of completing, completing those projects, 
Um, we have a couple that have reached COD this year and one that we expect to finalize uh, and reach COD by the end of this year. Um, and we have uh, a, another exciting new project that we haven't quite announced yet, but uh, we hope to announce before the end of the year and it will be a large focus over the next 12 to 18 months. So all of this has been despite the, the challenging pandemic environment we've managed through. We're adding gigawatts, we're expanding our portfolio. We expect to be approximately two gigawatts of operating assets by the end of, by the, end of the year. And as I said, we continue to expand the development project portfolio as well, not only in wind, but in solar. So a pretty busy couple of years, you might say. Yeah, and a couple more years to come in that same uh, same discussion. So let's take it to a broader level and talk about what Omer's ESG thesis today looks like and some of the measures it's taken uh, in this vein for its own portfolio investments, which seems to be a increasing theme amongst uh, global asset managers uh, in general, not not just for Omar's, but certainly curious to hear where you guys come in on this. Well, look, you're right. ESG and uh, environmental, social, and governance factors are uh, increasingly important for everyone. Um, I think driven by a greater sensitivity and interest among uh, the broad investment community, which is driven by a greater sensitivity and interest in, in not only climate change, but more broadly in social and governance considerations as well. As you know, and, and as I said before, we take a, a long-term perspective when we consider new investments. And if you look at investments on a long-term timeframe, uh, ESG factors are not new. They've been critically important for a very uh, considerable amount of time. and they drive the performance of our investments and how we think about value creation in those investments, not only in the past, but also as we look out to the future. So as a result, we've, uh, we've considered ESG factors as an important element in our investment evaluations um, for many years. And also when we take strategic considerations around, uh, around our existing assets in our portfolio. When we evaluate a new investment, um, we view the, the integration of ESG considerations not as a trade-off with generating strong returns for our pension members, um, but as a complement to that risk return assessment. And it really is a, uh, one of the key factors that we consider when we're, um, when we're evaluating a transaction. Uh, that all said, you know, we always acknowledge that we can continue to learn more and we've been working hard over the past 12, 24 months to see if we can even further integrate these critical factors into, into our business and into our performance assessments. In the past year, for example, we've done a lot of work regarding the transition to a low carbon economy uh, across our portfolio of existing assets and given thought to how that impacts uh, future investments. And, and obviously it's a key topic of discussion on every investment that we bring to, to committee. A um, couple of examples at, at Puget Sound, we're working with our investment partners and, and the management team out there on our strategy to comply with the Washington State Clean Energy Act. You know, that's a, an important initiative for us and for the company and one that we're very, very supportive of. It's also worth noting, you know, a lot of focus when people talk about ESG is on the E and across OMAs broadly and, and within our infrastructure team, we are also very, very focused on the S and the G. No surprise in the environment that um, we have all seen and experienced over the, over the past 12 months, we have been reassessing and reevaluating our own performance on inclusion and diversity. 
We have been promoting greater gender and racial diversity at our portfolio management teams. And we continue to look at ways in which we can enhance our efforts and our successes on, uh, on ensuring that we have a diverse and inclusive team that reflect the communities in which all of our portfolio companies manage. We also know that our portfolio companies provide essential services you know, within the communities in which they operate. And, and so social and governance factors are, are critically important. That at Life Labs, which is our, our medical labs business up in Ontario, we've supported the Ontario and the BC governments um, in the rollout of a, a COVID testing uh, program. And we've developed COVID frequent testing programs that are used by corporations and, and sports leagues um, across Canada uh, to remain open through this pandemic and operate safely for their employees and customers. So these types of initiatives go beyond just lower carbon intensity and, and consider all of the factors within being corporate citizens and contributing to the communities. One could say ESG is really in our DNA when we think about how we evaluate new opportunities and how we consider the management and governance of our, uh, our portfolio. Uh, terrific. Thank you for that, Michael. When we last talked, you mentioned to me about Bruce Power, uh, which is another one of Vomer's portfolio companies as the largest operating nuclear power facility in the world. And it's been a sort of a legacy investment with OMERS going on 17 years. And you mentioned it in the same breath as we were talking about ESG and, and this investment being part of um, energy transition. Can you just uh, walk us through the mechanics of this? Absolutely, and it's a, it's a fantastic example. We, we made that investment 17 odd years ago. Um, and look, I, I can't take the credit, but uh, I give a, a, a huge deal of credit to my predecessors in, in this role and in the foresight that they had to participate in, in buying and now expanding that, um, that phenomenal asset. Bruce is pretty unique. Uh, it's a zero emission clean energy investment. It provides approximately 30% of Ontario's power supply. It employs 4,000 people and generates uh, its total capacity is around 6.8 gigawatts. Um, so it's, it's significant. It's the largest single site nuclear power plant in the world. And it's helped Ontario become uh, a power grid which has one of the lowest emissions in the world. So Bruce was a key element to Ontario's phase out of coal and oil fired generation. Uh, it enabled the province to transition to reliable, inexpensive, and carbon-free electricity that really is based on uh, both the nuclear and the, and the hydro resources in the province. And uh, we are now with, with TC Energy, our 50% partner, repowering the, the, the business, Bruce, under a, under a multi-decade agreement with the province. So we're going to take uh, 10 plus years uh, and invest billions of dollars in repowering Bruce so it can continue to be a clean source of energy for the province for, for decades to come. And it's not just the environmental record where, where I think Bruce is a really active contributor. It's worth noting uh, Bruce also produces uh, Cobalt 60, which is a medical isotope. We ship that around the world to treat through radiology, treat brain tumors, uh, breast cancer. It's used to sterilize medical equipment. And indeed, we've been investing over the last couple of years to grow our production of, of this important isotope and also to bring on other isotopes that will be able to be used in, in medical procedures. So, 
you know, we see Bruce as a, a phenomenal example of how we are supporting the, the transition to a low carbon economy and also how we can contribute more broadly to the, to the community in which we, in which we live. Great. So what other alternative energies is uh, Omer's uh, looking at at this point and, and why are they appealing? Obviously, Leeward has a strong base of wind projects uh, currently uh, out there, uh, operational and under development. Um, what other um, kind of energies are you guys looking at? Yeah, look, as, a, as long-term investors, we spend a lot of time understanding and evaluating long-term trends such as the transition to lower carbon economy and, and the likely impact on our portfolio and our future investments. Over time, we, we do anticipate that our portfolio will evolve. Uh, it will reflect lower carbon energy sources and probably much in the same way that we've grown our investments in, in telecom and data over the past few years to reflect the shift in, in the economy towards that sector. I talked before about the focus of Leeward on, on solar. We've been uh, building our expertise there and have built a development team to be able to focus on, on opportunities in that space. And we're looking for new solar opportunities with Leeward in North America. And, and then more broadly, we're looking at new investments to build out solar around the world. We've also been developing a, a deeper understanding of the battery storage space. We've evaluated a number of smaller opportunities recently in that sector. Um, we, we think the, the storage space is interesting um, and one which we, we hope to be able to find a, a, a path to putting capital into and investing in and supporting in the, in the not too distant future, but it also is still going through its challenges and frequently requires subsidies or um, other support from off-takers in order to justify the, um, the economics. So that's one where we're spending time, but where at least to date, we haven't quite seen the opportunity that matches our, our risk profile and return profile. Um, we continue to, to look at other potential technologies that will help navigate the transition. Technologies such as demand response management, uh, methane capture technology, um, carbon sequestration, and and potentially the support for uh, growth in the electric car park through um, through charging networks. Every every technology like this that we look at, we've got to constantly balance the the the, the take up risk and the broader um, technological and and cost risk against our focus on long term stable critical infrastructure, which was the ultimately the hallmark of our portfolio and what we believe is uh, is best able to provide a strong returns for our pension members. But we, we also look and we think these emerging areas will revolve over the medium term and uh, hopefully over time they will meet our investment criteria and will require a lot of capital to fully develop and to build out. And so that's where we think that we will become, um, you know, very logical uh, active investors in some of these spaces. Excellent. Um, can I ask you one last question about um, EV infrastructure, which you just touched on there? Um, you know, we we have uh, in our in our uh, not on our pages, but on our on our web pages, we're in about um, you know how states um, aside from California are starting to ramp up um, EV infrastructure incentives and sometimes procuring new greenfield in that area. Um, is that market still a little bit too nascent for you guys at this point, even if it is has a future appeal or um, something you're looking at further? It's an area that we're spending more and more time on, John. Um, 
I, I think quite recently uh, New York State yeah, uh, York announced State. A, an, an incentive and there's been obviously um, a lot of support out uh, on the West Coast. We're, we're spending more time looking at it. I, I do think it's an area where we will be um, able to invest significant capital and support the build out over time. Uh, it's, it's a matter of working through the subsidy structures and supports that are likely to be needed to do that, both with the, the governments and regulators, but also with uh, the utilities and transmission operators who are likely to, uh, to actually uh, bring a lot of that power. And, and we are, are, are quite fortunate, given the seat that we sit in, we own regulated utilities in, in Texas, in Washington state. We have power generation in, in a number of states through Leeward and through Bruce and through other assets. And so we feel we are very, very well positioned to understand the market and, and to be a contributor and a bringer of capital or a provider of capital over time. Um, honestly, it's been uh, challenging to make the the returns work um, to date, uh, but we suspect that uh, the market structure will evolve and mature over the over the not too distant future, and we hope to be able to participate. Great, well, Michael, thank you uh, for your time today. Really appreciate you uh, coming on the program. Thanks, John. Enjoyed it, and uh, have a great rest of the day. So, from uh, renewable investments, uh, we go to logistics and cross-border logistics. We'll hand it over to you, uh, Mr. Carmody. Uh, take it away. Thanks, John. So today we have an interesting guest. We're talking to Marco Espinosa from Caxor Group. Uh, we published an article and in information last week about an impressive project that they're designing at Caxor for what they call the USMCA corridor, US-Mexico-Canada corridor. It's a logistics project which involves the construction of port facilities in Mexico, logistics centers along the rail routes between Mazatlan in Sonora and Winnipeg in Canada, and a few rail connections as well that could prove interesting for rail developers. So I wanted to talk a little bit to you today, Marco, about Kexel Group, who you guys are, and what you're planning here with this project. So if you could start with a brief introduction of yourself and, and Caxor, and we can talk a little about the project. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, yes, my name is Marco Espinosa. I'm the Senior Vice President and Director of Operations of Caxor Group. Uh, we're a Mexico City-based firm with offices in London, uh, in the Middle East as well, in the UAE, Colombia, and Panama. Uh, we specialize mainly in Latin American infrastructure projects, and we also represent National Standard Finance based out of Atlanta for the Latin America area. Uh, we were founded about 15 years ago, and we've been operating in Latin America now for the better part of about four years. We've developed a very close relationship specifically uh, with the current Mexican government, Mexican administration. We are currently participating in uh, several energy projects, combined cycle power plants, a few port facilities here in, in Mexico, a few fuel storage deposit facilities, um, as well as uh, some energy projects in Panama and in uh, Colombia. We've been named by the uh, Mexican presidential office as the project integrator for the USMCA corridor project, as it's been named, um, which basically encompasses uh, rehabilitating a large amount of rail, we're talking about 167 kilometers of rail to be rehabilitated 
84 new kilometers of rail, uh, which will give Mexico through the Mazatlan uh, port area access to the 7,115 kilometers that are in the North American corridor that go all the way up into Winnipeg. So essentially the purpose of, of, uh, of this project is to guarantee full integration between obviously Mexico, the United States and Canada, and also give access um, to goods coming in from Asia to take off a little bit of the cargo load that is saturated in Manzanillo and in Long Beach. Fantastic. Marco, it's certainly a very, very ambitious project. Uh, looking at the size, we were talking about a figure previously of around $3.3 billion. Could you just break down where that investment is going to go to in the project? Yes, essentially the investment is broken up into three areas. So we have the development of the port facility in Mazatlan, which is going to be about 2,000 hectares, uh, which will be rehabilitated and created into the main port facility. Uh, that will receive goods primarily from Asia, Africa, uh, and Europe as well, even though it's on the Pacific side. Um, then the secondary part would be the rail component, uh, which we have a lot of interest from some of the largest rail operators in the United States. I can't mention the name on the record yet because we're in final negotiations with them, but there's a lot of interest for one of the major operators already to take that, that part of the project. And then the final component are the several logistics and storage centers that are going to be along the rail line uh, that will guarantee the consolidation of cargo, the integration of different products that are manufactured in the north of Mexico, which accounts for about 25% of our GDP already, as well as almost $100 billion worth of export capacity. So those are basically the three components that make up uh, the $3.3 billion that we have planned for this project. Okay. Now, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the structure of the investments, Marco. In, in terms of these individual sections, as I understand it, you're planning to divide the, the individual investment areas up into different SPVs, different trusts, to kind of manage them separately, but as part of a wider project. How does, uh, how does Caxor Group and your partners at National Standard Finance participate in these projects? And, and what is really the role that you perform for investors in these projects? So CAXR is, uh, we'd like to call ourselves kind of all-in-one because we're essentially a project integrator that also has the financial arm of the debt component. So we are not greenfield developers and we do not uh, put in our own equity. We essentially account for 80% of the debt component. Um, initially, right now, with the Mexican government, through our development banks of uh, NAFIN, which is the National Infrastructure Bank, Banobras, which is the National Public Works Bank, and Banco Mext, which is our Exxon Bank, they will be providing, let's say, the greenfield development funds that will allow the project to be viable and then to have the private investors come in with the equity component. Right now, the equity component is being looked at by, for example, in the rail component side, uh, one of the largest rail operators in the United States. Uh, for the port side, we have one of the largest operators in the UAE uh, who's interested in putting the equity for that component, as well as another uh, potential investor from the Netherlands, which is also one of the largest operators there. Um, and then for the logistics centers, we have a few national uh, companies that are logistics operators that are interested in taking that component. So essentially the three stages are obviously the government support part, which is the government, let's say, subsidy part, which essentially is 
the pre-development, and then the equity side, which will come from the private players, and then finally the debt component, which we are obviously looking with our partners at National Standard Finance to place about 80% of the project's value in debt. Marco, what's the time frame that you're looking at for the development of these different projects? So the time frame, obviously, it's a very ambitious project, Jonathan. Um, and obviously, we don't expect to complete the project fully in this presidential term, although obviously that is the objective. Essentially, we'll start off with the with the port side of the project, followed by the rail, and then the logistics centers. There are several several of them. There are between three and six planned. But right now, the speed is actually quite alarming because the Mexican federal government has already initiated placing 2,000 hectares in trust to initiate the port development side. So already, Mexican authorities, including the, uh, the Secretary of the Environment, the Secretary of the Economy, the national infrastructure banks that I already mentioned, they have already been given instructions and are already placing in trust 2,000 hectares for the initial development of the project. So it's moving extremely quickly. Now, I believe, and we believe here at Caxer, that we will be able to have an initial port initiation within the next 12 months so that we actually start initial construction within the following 12 months. We have the full support of the Mexican government, like I mentioned, and authorities. The permitting side will be carried out by the government itself, which will obviously cut a lot of the red tape that is faced, you know, specifically in the United States. So a lot of the operators that we've been talking to on the logistics and rail side already had their own projects that they were independently seeking to develop. And upon hearing about CACSR being named for the development of this specific project, they approached us organically saying, hey, we are we were looking at doing this already, but now that we have you guys who've been named by the Mexican government to do this, let's integrate, let's, let's uh, consolidate our efforts to try and make this go as quickly as possible. So we have a huge advantage in timing there, and what a lot of them have told us, and what we know is obviously Mexico is a little bit more lax when it comes to the regulations and to the timeframes of getting a lot of these permits out. These things tend to take a lot less time in Mexico than, for example, in the, in the United States. So this is one of the competitive advantages that we have. I mean, to give you an idea, you know, if, if you're going to develop a highway in the United States, it could take up to five, six years of planning, whereas here in Mexico, we could do it in half the time, just simply because of the bureaucratic side of the equation is actually a lot simpler. So we're looking at initiating the first phase realistically within 12 months, and then we're aiming at a full conclusion of the project within the next four years. It's interesting you talk about the simplicity of the bureaucracy in Mexico. I'm sure you're well aware that in the last few years, under President Andres Manuel López Obrador, we've heard a lot about infrastructure investors, in particular in the energy space, complaining about government's attempts to, to limit private investment in the infrastructure and energy sectors. Uh, you seem to have a very good relationship with the Mexican government. So I was wondering if there's any particular advice you could give to investors who are looking to, to develop projects in the region who might be cautious about what they've been hearing about Mexico? Well, uh, Jonathan, you're absolutely right. When it comes to energy specifically, uh, there is a larger issue at hand that does have to do with the internal politics. You have to remember that this current government is a left-leaning government, so they're very focused on the social good and social well-being, which I think is also fantastic because we haven't had the opportunity to have a government like that in Mexico you know, in more than 50 years, quite frankly. So on that side, on the energy side, I would 
can caution investors in general because there is a policy, again, when it comes specifically to the energy sector, um, to strengthen the national uh, energy companies. So the CFE, which is our electrical company, and PEMS. So that is definitely already out in the open, and that is the tendency that this government has. So again, on energy, I would be very cautious, especially when it comes to renewables, which is unfortunate. Uh, but there's a good argument that the government also makes for that. When it comes to wind and solar, uh, because of the variations in power delivery, it's causing a lot of problems and disruption to the Mexican electrical grid. And so the CFE, which is the federal part, has to take care of that and then has to subsidize that and then has to find the solution for that because at the end of the day, the transmission lines are theirs. So there are also some things that do have to do with the social well-being of the country, which were not considered uh, necessarily in past governments. It was more, you know, making money for the sake of making money. And this government is focused towards the social impact equation part of of the project. So when we're talking about the North Corridor train or the USMCA train, um, there's also another project, which is kind of a mirror project, which is called the Eastmo project, which is a train in the South, which is the same thing. And they're both geared towards the same idea. Is this going to create a benefit for the general population? How many people can it impact? And the Mexican government currently in power is open to anything that will create a positive impact and obviously a trickle-down effect to the inhabitants of the communities where it's built. So I think that's a key component. And again, I, I think that just this is, I think, the rule of thumb in any country where you go is you have to get in bed with the local people. So we're operators here from Mexico. Our team at Caxer is multidisciplinary. Some of us come from a construction background. Some of us are contractors from the past. Some of us are bankers, but we've been doing business in Mexico for a long time. So I think that helps us to have the vision and also to have the realistic outlook of how we can make this work. And again, you mentioned there obviously getting to bed with the locals in different countries. Mexico is not the only country where you guys are operating. You obviously said you had offices in London, Panama, and Colombia. Yes. Sir. Tell us more about some of the, the other projects in, oh, sorry, and, and in the U.S. as well. Uh, well, in the U.S., we have our strategic alliance with National Standard Finance, which essentially is one of our strongest financing arms. Um, and we don't operate in the United States. We operate for them in Latin America. But in Panama, essentially, we have a great relationship with the current government there as well. Uh, they're looking at taking the opportunity right now because of COVID. They looked, obviously, at their export-driven and basically transit, sorry, transit logistics-driven economy. And they realized that, hey, we have uh, surpluses, but we don't have industry. So one of the things that we've been tasked with by the Panamanian government right now is to look at several industrial uh, opportunities that have to do with uh, local fuel refining uh, that have to do with a very large mining project because they have uh, one of the largest copper uh, easements in, 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 uh, in the Americas that they're looking to develop, and also just secondary industry when it comes to potentially some manufacturing and assembly of components. And so that's what we're looking at in Panama. And then in Colombia, we're specifically looking at two port projects and a train project. Uh, and then in the UAE, we're looking at some defense-related projects, and that's just a relationship that we developed organically uh, with some members of the royal family there. So those are essentially the projects that we're looking at right now uh, in the Americas and in UAE. Mark, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I know already for a fact from speaking to our readers that it's already generating a lot of interest. 
what you're doing with the USMCA corridor. It sounds like you're very busy, so I'll, uh, I'll let you get back to it, and we'll pass it over to John Burke. Thanks for coming on. Thank the you show. very much, Jonathan. Have a great day. Uh, thanks, Marco, and thanks uh, for coming on the uh, program today. So before I let you go, I just wanted to uh, quickly mention that on November 9th, we are doing a webinar uh, for Latin American Renewables uh, at the start of a new decade, I believe is what we titled it, Mr. Carmody. We are having on the program Guido Serini from Credit Suisse and Carlos Marron from Flattergreen and Ricardo Diaz from Kibico Investments. Who was the fourth one, Jonathan? We've also got Saurabh Anand coming from Denim Capital. Oh, right, They've Denim, been investing yeah. through a few platform companies in the region, companies like Rio Energy and Sabre Energy. So we're really interested to hear about how they're developing those platforms and, and how they envision renewable investing in the next decade. Terrific. And you can find some uh, more information on that event uh, on our website. Anyway, that's all the time we got. Uh, thanks for listening in uh, for today's uh, podcast, and we'll uh, see you next time. Thank you.